as a atheist myself in the past, this was the one argument I would always bring to Christians. Do you, you know, you come to them and I was in the, in the religious South in the Bible belt. So every time you talk to people, how are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. Do you know your Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? I'm like, bro, listen, chill, man. I just asked how you doing. Like, we don't have to get into a religious discussion and we would get into these debates and I would say, listen, Cain killed one person at the beginning of the world. Hitler kills systematically 6 million. Stalin kills 50 million of his own people. And you're telling me Cain's been burning since the beginning of time and Hitler and Stalin have only been burning since the 1930s, 40s, 50s. And that's fair. The Lineage Journey Podcast, unscripted conversations that aim to help you on the journey of discovering your lineage. Join us as we take a deeper look into past lineage episodes and see the lessons we can learn for today. Sebastian Braxton is the founder of Fiat Lux, a UX design agency based in North Carolina, and the CEO for the New Life Challenge, a mobile app designed to make keeping the laws of health social, fun, and easy. He is a UX design researcher with a BA in entrepreneurship and finance and an MA in communication. His current passion projects involve mental health, mentorship, and EGY audio recordings. Hi guys, welcome to our Lineage Journey podcast. Today we have a guest on our podcast whose name is Sebastian Braxton. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him for several years going all the way back over different continents and places where we've met, met and ministered together. It's good to have you here, Sebastian. True. Thanks for having me, Adams. Good to see you, bro. Good to see you. Good to see you. So what's your background in ministry? What are you doing currently? Just a little bit about yourself before we go into the subject that we're going to look at today. Oh, man. Um, well, my background in ministry, I was brought into the church through uh, public campus ministry um, in Atlanta, Georgia. Young lady gave me a Bible study on Daniel 2, changed my life. Uh, fell in love with the scriptures, um, Ellen White. Uh, within a few months, I was baptized. Uh, then I served as a missionary for two years to secular universities. Okay. Was that in Michigan? That was in Michigan. Okay. Um, pretty much from there, I decided to go back to school to a secular college that didn't have a campus ministry, mm-hmm. hoping to start one up. Finished my business degree in finance entrepreneurship. Graduated from there, started a program in Harvard, a uh, missionary oh, program, yeah. uh-huh. and then we planted a church at Harvard. Uh-huh. Um, several churches actually in the Boston area. And then from there, I decided to launch out into the unknown, did a lot of um, development work and mm. uh, different types of ministry in the 1040 window, um, refugees in the Middle East, okay. on and on. And then after that, I just kind of got weary of waiting on donors and depending on people to mm-hmm. give money to the vision. And so I decided to pursue, go back to my entrepreneurial roots um, okay. Started two companies, the New Life Challenge, uh, bought that with an investor, and then started a company called Fiat Lux, which is consulting. Okay. And uh, basically, we're a design creative agency. Okay. So, so you've got a varied background in ministry. Very. Um, and you're a public speaker as well. Yeah, sometimes I get the privilege to speak. <laughs> um, it's nice. Okay, so we're going to look at the subject today of how doctrine was restored. Mm-hmm. 
And so in order to do that, we've got to first look at what the Dark Ages is and what's the terminology of the Dark Ages. As right. you know, um, this is the Lineage podcast, and Lineage did a whole series on the Reformation. So yeah, we I love at what you guys do. The, Amazing stuff. Basically, how, how which people and events took place that brought back this understanding mm-hmm. that had been lost. So what is the Dark Ages? It, it's a term that's, for a certain period of history, it's also a term that's seeped into general language of society across the world but what would you say is the dark ages and why that terminology so you know a lot of uh philosophers have kind of been attributed to this term and now in modern times a lot of historians don't like the term they feel Mm. like it's misinformation Mm -hmm. but generally um it was representative of the period during the decline of the roman empire until the renaissance in the 1500s um it represented ultimately a time of ignorance and confusion, which is why people usually say when you are counter science or you're counter intellectual Mm. development, it's like you're trying to take us back to the dark ages. Um, But during that time, literacy was very uncommon. Mm -hmm. People use reliefs and visual pictures to communicate in the church. There was economic deterioration. The gap between the wealthy and the Mm -hmm. poor was extreme and also cultural deterioration. You had no respect for personal boundaries. You had no respect for your neighbor the values of society just were completely devoid of any sort of respect for the individual, the community, or any Mm -hmm. ultimate values. And uh, Petrarch, who was an Italian scholar, he's the one that's really been attributed historically with coining the term. He kind of borrowed this sort of imagery of light and dark based upon the absence or the prevalence of historical record. So -hmm. if there was records of what was happening, there was history being recorded, Mm -hmm. he considered that to be light right this is kind of the light ages and then you have the dark ages where nothing was recorded and so in those middle ages um which typically you're talking about you know 500 bc you know roman empire fell in 476 AD. yes thank you um and then you go from about 500 a.d all the way to you know about 1000 12 1300 that's when most scholars are like we'll give you it for that period but during that time, we don't have a lot of history. We don't it's have a lot of yeah. books not written, not that were written. We don't have any any sort of referent to say, oh, that's what life was like. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is considered a time of ignorance and confusion. Mm. Okay. That's kind of the time period when you had the Crusades as well. Absolutely. I mean, the barbaric nature of yeah. how religion was spread. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go into Constantine, when you go into the Catholic, the Bishop of Rome having political influence not only in terms of policy and law, but even in the courts Mm. and how certain cases were decided, they would consult the Pope. Well, how do you see this person? Well, if the person was Catholic, then there was Mm. a certain leniency, right? But if he was not a priest, he was just a lowly common So this was also the time period when there's a strong union between the Holy Roman Church in Europe and the various kings and states in Europe as well. And when you look at that, Christianity was generally united Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have um, Valdez with the, the um, Waldensians and mm-hmm. other people that were obviously removed before the Reformation. So we kind of call them pre-Reformation. They were already kind of departing, seeing mm-hmm. what was happening and staying true to the word of God. But um, by and large, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of like, what what is going on and why is it that we're paying so much homage to the church? But there was no other option. You weren't mm-hmm. a part of the church. You didn't have salvation. Yeah. yeah. So, like, anybody interested in yeah. damning themselves? No. So I'll work with it. Complain, but I'll work with it. Mm-hmm. So that's the Dark Ages. Then we're going to look at some of the doctrines in just a minute. But before we do that, maybe mm-hmm. another definition. 
What, what would you define as the Reformation and what does the term mean? So Reformation coming from the word reform, which means to shape again. And it's usually used in opposition to revive, which means to live again. Mm. So you have something is dead. Going back to Ezekiel 37, you have these dead man's bones, right? You have to first kind of, he starts with this reform, shaping the bones, connecting mm -hmm. them, flesh on the bone. And then the spirit comes in to revive, to make it actually live. So the Reformation really was shaping around external practices in the institution. It wasn't really addressing, you know, which we would call revival and reformation, right? Mm. That's what we would think about it. But back then they were like, I'm not trying to form a new church. I'm not trying. I just want to mm. reform and what reshape how the church functions and how Christian practices dictated. The reformation, which is typically termed the Protestant reformation, mm. yeah. was this rejection of the Catholic church's authority to define Christian practice, mm. where there was a essentially a call to kind of purify the church and restore the Bible back to the supreme authority. This is ultimately what we're going instead of tradition. So the Pope doesn't have supreme authority. The Bible does. The church doesn't determine salvation. Christ does, according to what the scriptures say. And so this reformation predominantly rode upon the backs of the the problems going on in the church, the abuses that were happening, mm. the immoral life of the priests. People had already been seeing those issues from the church abuses that were painful and they were obvious, but no one ever vocally came out against it to the degree that the reformers did. Mm. And that's really where you look at the Reformation. Most of those reformers did not want to leave. They it wasn't their intention. Change. It wasn't their intention. Yeah. Right. They were like, I just want to change the way we do stuff. Mm. Um, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later in our discussion, but to think about how they did it and the ways in which it came about, you know, directly connected to my own conversion on a secular university, mm. um, that these citadels in Europe were actually the centers of what moved the Reformation forward, were scholars. Yeah. And now you have a, a huge movement in Protestantism that's anti-scholar because they believe these people destroy faith in God and higher criticism and question fascinating isn't it, to see the the switch right yeah yeah so what doctrines would you, you've indicated a little bit would you say did you say the dark ages is say a 500 ish to around 12 1300 right so the early church before 500 and then let's say 1300 yeah what doctrines uh, were around in the early church that by the end of the Dark Ages, let's say 1300 AD. Had been lost. Had been lost. Yeah. It's a good question. I know there's a lot. Maybe just yeah. share, share a couple of them. I think the obvious one is the authority of Scripture versus tradition. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't get the Reformation without the Bible. Um, in the common language, that vernacular that the common person could understand. Um, so to me, the restoration of Scripture. So you're talking about 1522, uh, Luther translated into German, um, Lefebvre, you know, in 1523, um, Tyndale was 1525, and then uh, Bruccioli in Italy was 1532, and in Spain was about, in Sweden were like 10 years later. So you're, you're basically looking at the restoration of scripture being accessible and also authoritative was kind of fundamental, but that was kind of lost. Like people are like, well, this is what the church said. That's what the priest said. Mm. That's what the Pope says. This papal bull was issued. So that's what it is. Another thing that was lost was Christ as the foundation and not Peter. 
Mm-hmm. So we'd go back to Matthew 16. Well, upon this rock, right, I will build my church. Um, one of the earliest reformers, Jan Hus, you know, that's the thing that he preached against the most. Peter is not the foundation of the church. Mm-hmm. Christ is. Uh, baptism by immersion and, of course, justification by faith. I mean, salvation was like the thing. That's what united all the reformers. You are not saved by works, by indulgences, by self-flagellation. You're saved only by the merits of Jesus and through faith in what he has done. And some of the other ones I kind of found fascinating, like in Italy, um, were things like religious liberty um, and the loss of this freedom of conscience, wasn't, mm. which wasn't initially central to the Reformation when people who were actually departing from Reformation doctrine, sometimes those things were getting out of hand. They were killing people hanging them, burning down yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, you don't want to accept this? So we're going to yeah. b- burn priests. But that was never what the reformers preached. Mm-hmm. And so eventually this started coming along. People have the right to believe what they want to believe. And that religious liberty and that freedom of conscience wasn't initially right away restored as well, even with the Reformation. Hmm. So losing these doctrines, what what's the challenge to the believer of that? Like, if you are if you are a believer in twelve hundred and mm-hmm. these doctrines that some of these we mentioned like the authority of scripture and and Christ as our whatever yeah. our, our savior as opposed to going to the priest, what's the main challenge for that believer? You could you, you could say or or yeah yeah I think you know I really like this question a lot for our day because we live in a time where Generation Z sees religion as optional. Mm-hmm. Right. But faith in God is not right. Spirituality is mm-hmm. essential. They consider it to be one of the most important things they think about weekly is their spiritual life, spirituality. But when they think about church life, church teachings, church worldviews is irrelevant. And so I think the word doctrine has gotten a bad rap. It's, yeah. it's kind of gotten the butt, you know, the end of the stick. And this is because we divorce doctrine from Jesus fundamentally. That's the fundamental reason why we see doctrine as unrelated when doctrine is believing what Jesus believed. We inherited it from the apostles who got it from Jesus. So on the very fundamental piece, most people have no problem with Jesus. Mm -hmm. But this is the things that Jesus believed. He believed when you die, you sleep. Mm. He believed that there will be two resurrections, (laughs) one unto life, one unto everlasting punishment. Like, He believed in the infilling of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit was a person. So I want to believe what Jesus believed. But when you go forward in that, beliefs also lead to behaviors. Faith and practice are inseparable, as James talks about, right? You tell me you have faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So this recognition, he says, the devils also believe and tremble. So no one's going to say that the devil is a Christian. And that's because, you know, um, I believe it's in the Great Controversy where, you know, Ellen White says that the devil cannot at heart deny the existence of God. He knows in his heart that God is real. His jealousy would be madness if God were not real. Why would you want to sit upon the the Mount of the Congregations of the North if there is no throne occupied? So at heart, he can't deny it, but that's not faith. And so when we talk about doctrine... We have to look at the fact that our greatest contribution, I believe, as the finishing of the Reformation was the restoration of the meta-narrative of the great controversy, which clarifies this question clearly. Show me a false doctrine, and I will show you a distortion of deity. I will show you a distortion of God. 
You want to talk about eternal hellfire? Think of the implications on the character of God. Teaching or doctrine that's probably created the most atheists. Out of anyone. Out of any. Because it, it, it shows something about the who God is. 100%. I mean, as a atheist myself in the past, this was the one argument I would always bring to Christians. Do you, you know, you come to them and I was in the, in the religious South, in the Bible Belt. So every time you talk to people, how are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. Do you know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm like, bro, listen, chill, man. I just asked how you doing. Mm -hmm. We don't have to get into a religious discussion. And we would get into these debates. And I would say, listen, Cain killed one person at the beginning of the world. Hitler kills systematically 6 million. Stalin kills 50 million of his own people. And you're telling me Cain's been burning since the beginning of time. And Hitler and Stalin have only been burning since the 1930s, 40s, 50s. And that's fair. And they're like, you can't, you can't question God, right? You can't challenge his decisions. And, you know, you don't know. I was like, oh, let me get it. Oh, I'm sure, right? Maybe Hitler's fire is a little bit more intense, right? He just turned it up a a little notch. And I'm, you know, I'm making pejorative jokes to them about this absurdity. Even when you deal with salvation by faith, I would say, so are you, are you without sin? So are you saying you're not sinning? You ain't sinned this week? And, but I'm forgiven, right? So then what's the point of being forgiven if a person does it again? I would never marry and stay married to a person mm. who continues to disrespect our vows, our relationship over and over again and says, well, I know you're going to forgive me. This is not a relationship. This is enabling. So as an atheist, I would attack these types of things, but it's because there were distortions. Distortions of the picture of God. Justification with no sanctification. So, like, so to the person who says that doctrines are useless or boring, Oh, man, I my first laugh would be, so tell me a doctrine that you feel is critical to Christianity. And even if I I will move the word doctrine, tell me something about Jesus that you love. Hmm. They would say, oh, I love the fact that Christ always talked about love. That's a doctrine. Mm -hmm. That's a teaching. You know that because someone taught it to you. It was taught to you either by the scriptures themselves, by the guiding of the Holy Spirit or by a human teacher that said, this is a truth that all people who are disciples of Christ must believe. Mm -hmm. The moment you say that, you don't get to pick and choose which teachings are acceptable and which are not. You're then putting yourself above scripture. The Bible tells us, as Paul says, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. So if the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for teachings, And the Bible, Jesus says, testifies of me. That means whenever Jesus is testified about, it is profitable for doctrine. Anything that points to Christ is profitable for doctrine. The problem is doctrine has been divorced from Jesus. We talk about the state of the dead without Jesus. We talk about the sanctuary without Jesus. We talk about prophecy without Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you might believe I am. It's the purpose of prophecy is to lead to faith in Christ. So why are we talking about the seven thunders? Is this going to lead to faith in Christ? Because that's the purpose of prophecy. And when you divorce it from Jesus, this is where you're going to be in trouble. And that's why people reject doctrine, but yet they love Jesus. Somehow they've accepted a form of this doctrine that is devoid of Christ. And if you do, I mean, it's kind of hard not to reject it. Because nothing is lovely without Jesus. It's true. 
So we see that there's, there's uh, if we kind of summarize a few of the thoughts we've looked at, Dark Ages is that mm-hmm. time period. If we were to put a date on it, 500 to 1300-ish, yeah. give or take. Some would even take it even further, maybe to 1400. Um, terminology, there's light and darkness, mm-hmm. uh, right. access to knowledge, yeah. access to books. even literacy or right. books or things <laughs> like that. So the Reformation comes along to reform. Yep. Initially, the, the the intention was not to start a new denomination, but was just to fix up the church. That's exactly right. The church at the time, but there was a lot because there was no learning, there was no books, there was no whatever. A lot yeah. of doctrines had been lost. Yep. You just mentioned a few of them. Um, and but the challenge of using these doctrines is that it distorts our picture of who Jesus is. That's right. And by not seeing who Jesus is, it's a a bad witness for the term Christianity or bad witness for followers of Jesus. 100%. It directly affects our mission. Mm -hmm. We can't even successfully do evangelism Mm -hmm. because it's affecting the gospel Mm -hmm. because he is the gospel. Yeah. So if you're you're jacking up your picture of Jesus. I I think if you think about that time period of history was when we sent crusades, uh, use that word in inverted commas, from Europe to to the Middle East mm-hmm. to capture Jerusalem. Yes. But you could even argue today, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, a lot of the problems in the Middle East go back to how the Christian crusaders went there. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. the 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 reality that they did it in the name of Jesus. And they wanted you to know that it was in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Like there if you pillage my my city in the name of a person, you're never gonna like that person. How can you tell me as a child, I saw you take a machete to my mom and say, this is in the name of this person. And then you expect me to eventually come to have faith in the same person. Yeah. Good luck. You might as well kick rocks. It's not (laughs) happening. It's true. It's a huge, huge issue. So we're going to take a break in in a second for for our listeners. Um, But when we come back, we're going to look at what was the first doctrine restored and what was the process of restoration. So thank you guys for listening to our Lineage Journey podcast. And thank you for Sebastian Braxton for being here with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Lineage is a non-profit organization kept running by generous donors like you. Support us today on patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. History shapes identity. Identity shapes mission. And a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Lineage Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the Dark Ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, Lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories, and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. Lineage Journey not only produces video content, 
but instructive and illuminating resources to teach young and old about Christian history. Lineage has produced an educational coloring book for people of all ages. It includes original artwork from Ashley Bloom, highlighting the various heroes of the Reformation. Each scene has a matching story, and there are also QR codes to connect you to the website for more information and to watch the videos. There are also fun facts and memorable quotes to accompany the scenes to color in. Designed for young and old alike, get your copy now at lineagejourney.com. So welcome back, everyone. We're looking in this podcast with Sebastian Braxton at the doctrines that were lost and restored during the time period of the Dark Ages and the Reformation. So Sebastian, thanks for being with us. What would you say is the first doctrine, if you can pinpoint the first one, or maybe first in time or first in preeminence, that was restored after the Dark Ages as the Reformation began? Oh, this is really a hard one. I think there's it's a debate probably between Scripture and Salvation. But if I had to use, because I like the word you use, preeminence, then it's justification by faith, by far. I mean, the Reformation was simultaneous and independent. So Luther's doing his thing in Germany, but then you have Zwingli, then you, right? So this is all simultaneously happening in England. So it's like, well, if Tyndale doesn't do what he does, Latimer's impact is not as great. Mm -hmm. Because Tyndale translated the scriptures and then was smuggling them back into England. So when you look at doctrinally, it's kind of hard for the Reformation to succeed without the Bible. Yeah. But at the same time, the thing that they wanted to get people back to in Scripture was salvation by faith. Mm. You're justified through the merit. You don't need a priest. And this was something that irked most of the Reformers, this dependence upon the priest that was built into Catholicism. Mm. I have to go to the priest. I have to confess. He blesses. He He's the one that makes everything sing. And so... I would say justification by faith was the preeminent doctrine restored. You don't need to crawl on your knees and say 50 Hail Marys every step. You don't need to torture yourself. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to pay money through indulgences. Mm. Just go to Jesus, confess and believe, Mm -hmm. and you are saved. And one of the historical sermons that Luther preached was um, when his church at Wittenberg in the university they, they loved listening to him preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, one day he's walking and he sees everybody lining up to give, you know, pay for these relics and then pay for these indulgences. And, you know, supposedly he preaches this sermon about, you know, you turn to relics, you turn to these things, and all along there is Jesus. Hmm. He was always there. And how easy it is for us to focus on that which is visceral, which is tangible. And we can touch and we can feel and handle that. And that makes me feel like I'm saved. And I feel like that's what leads into speaking in tongues and a lot of the things that the, the religious practices where the old guard doesn't want to change how we do things. Because for us, that's what makes us feel saved mm. rather than accepting by faith that we mm. are because of the merits of Christ. Okay, I like that. So you got the Bible is fundamental and key, but in your mind, and this is all kind of subjective anyway, yes. in a sense, but you like that the doctrine of the 
justification by faith. Yes. I heard one person put it this way. They said the Reformation discovered two things. Number one, it discovered who Jesus Christ was. Number two, it discovered who Antichrist was. Yeah. You know? I mean, essentially divided by those two doctrines. You can identify them immediately because anyone who takes the place of Christ is going to suppose themselves as the means of salvation, Mm. right? And they're going to make their authority as the word because Mm -hmm. in order to say that, you'd have to have the same authority as Scripture. Sure, sure. So what was, when a doctrine like, say, justification by faith, or you could be another one, Mm -hmm. uh, that's restored, what's, is that a process or like, you know, in its discovery and then its reception? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the citadels in in, in uh, England, I mean, not England, but throughout Europe, where these reformers were professors, they were scholars. And mm-hmm. this was critical because the Bible was written only, you could only read it in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. And the only people who knew those languages were scholars. Mm-hmm. So the big process of restoration of how a doctrine comes back is it comes back to its prominence from the pulpit its accessibility also mm. in reading, because one of the elements that made the Reformation successful was the printing press. Gutenberg press, yeah. So if you can't print, you know, when Luther nailed his 95 theses, he didn't make copies. His disciples made copies. Mm-hmm. So they were like, took this thing off, we're going to print this thing, make copies, and distribute it. Even when you get into um, Huss or Zwingli, people would take their stuff, we're going to print this thing, we're going to spread it around. Tyndale smuggling Bibles into England, even after he left initially. You look at the fact that this process started off with intellectuals who could read the Bible, then translate it into the language of the common man. Then you had to preach it where they had the lectern and they had the authority and the platform, which is where a lot of them in their countries ran into problems with the Pope because like, well, you letting this guy Mm. speak every week, every day, (laughs) lecturing on justification by faith and preaching on the epistles of paul and they're like no this this is not so i think process wise it always begins with these people who have authority who have trust giving preeminence to them Mm. and then into the personal study Mm. because that printing made it available for me to reflect and to talk to my son to my wife my cousin my grandmother about Mm. it to share it do you think there's a uh, when you look at the reformation different to adventist history and stark contrast in many ways reformation history has very preeminent people scholars professors mm-hmm. um even priests or Lawyers, monks yeah. you know who are the leaders of of that do you think that was i guess you say part of god's plan to use people of respect in society because society was so deferential to authority and respect at the time i think that's exactly right god you know, always has a way to use the very thing you use to suppress the truth to promote it. Hmm. So you go back to the Israelites in Egypt when there's a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph. So you have, oh yeah, they're growing and multiplying. And the very reason why he wanted to oppress them, right? (laughs) They end up using this to ultimately deliver them. This is what led this like, well, why would God let us become oppressed? But you will never leave and fulfill your God-given purpose as a nation set apart if I don't allow this oppression to come. Hmm. So this very thing that we may see as a negative element that God allows in is removes our comfort to keep it moving into what God's trying to do. So when you look at the scholarly element, it's said we're going to lock up the scriptures only in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Well, you actually made it accessible to the most powerful, eloquent minds of your time. Hmm. And all God needs to do is reach one person in the nation. 
which is what the Reformation proved. He didn't need 50 scholars. He didn't need 100. He just needed one. And all of their students, and we've all had mentors. We've all had people who were influential to us in the formation of our understanding and our love of God. Those individuals, right, that the world at that time would have said, oh, no, they're going to be so committed to their position, to their prominence, to their whatever. You never count on the ability of the gospel to change the human heart, Mm. to venture away from prominence and celebrityism into a certain passion for the cause of God and for his name. And that's where I, I feel as if, you know, we we may be shocked about the means that God uses, but every single time you use it, I've seen it in families, I've seen it in churches. They said, we're not preaching on that. We only use King James Version. I mean, everything that people use to kind of suppress certain things, God ends up turning around to promote the truth. And it's like, you can't win. There's... God is too wise to be mistaken. Mm. So his foreknowledge is perfect. And I feel as if the Reformation is, I mean, it's its literally, it's got to be a divine comedy because you're like, we're going to hide this from the rest of the common people. We're going to make it available to intellectuals. Oh, which is great because they're the ones that motivated all the young yeah. people who you despised mm-hmm. to take their writings articulated in ways that are understandable to them who better than a teacher and then spread it through the low levels of society and therefore make it literally unconquerable you'd have to destroy your own power in order to get rid of the reformation yeah it was like this perfect combination of the printing press the scholars the the re-energized working classes and, and, now, the, and the independence of national states. Yeah. Right? And every state was was independent. Frederick kind of, doesn't get to protect yeah. Luther if you don't have that. Yeah, and even yeah. um, part of the Henry VIII, right? And him mm-hmm. wanting the Pope to annul his marriage. Mm-hmm. And Clemens like, nah. Right? So there's he's his, like, There's you know this political destabilization going on that, that plays into, into that. Into the... So God uses the selfishness of Henry, who just wants a male heir, mm-hmm. to drive that whole thing in England. Well, yeah, now I'm the really, authority in England. He really... In his mind, theologically, died a Catholic. Right. One hundred percent. But he just wanted to break away from the church, which was <laughs> a huge thing mm-hmm. that then successive generations could then build on. And which is unbelievable. theologically, yeah. I, I just love that God is able to do that, just to use the selfish decision of a king mm. to literally liberate a nation from false doctrine and darkness. It's true. And be like, I'm gonna protect my reformers just because, to spite you. Even though I believe everything you're saying, and I don't like the fact that they're preaching these things personally. Transubstantiation, the Eucharist should be accepted. Nah. Any particular reformers that stand out in your mind? And, and I mean, mean, you've mentioned a few names, broad swaths, but any particular ones and positive or negative? Positive. Um, I think one of the people that sticks out in my mind, um, I really, I mean, it's hard to get around Luther. Um, he was such a massive figure. Um, it's hard to get around Luther. But I feel like Zwingli was a radical dude, man. He like, was. He was a ra- And Huss, just the way he was converted by the picture, the two missionaries. The two paintings, yeah. His whole story. And just how the Bohemians transformed, like, resisting these people. for. I mean, that's a literal historical war mm-hmm. um, that historians reference as one of the greatest battles. It's fascinating. Um, and... 
how the Bohemians resisted. And even though by the time they conquered them, too late, the doctrines were already yeah, infiltrated. So Huss is one of my favorites for sure um, because of how young he was when he came to that realization and how influential and the speediness. I also like Wycliffe because of the brother was everything. I mean, he was a lawyer. He was a scholar. He was so far ahead of his time. When you look at some of his teachings, at least his views on church and state. Yes. He was probably, what was he, 1300s? Yeah. He was like 500 years ahead of his time. Way ahead. Luther and those guys never understood the relationship of the church to the state like Correct. he did. And it wasn't probably until the birth of America that some of Wycliffe's ideas came about. That's exactly right. So that's where I feel like Wycliffe is another person that I look at and say like, man, I mean, that man was special. I mean, he was he was a man out of time. I mean, to the fact leaders. that you dug up his body... And burn the bones just because they're so upset. Just because. <laughs> so that just tells you the impact that he had and the blow that he started. So I think those ones stick out to me. But I think when you when you really sit down and look at a lot of the reformers, um, there's a guy um, he's escaping my mind right now. I feel like it's Bernarducci or uh, Bernardino in Italy, but he was one of the first people I read about who was promoting um, religious liberty. And I really, and Savonarella, I think is it? Savonarola? I'm trying to make sure I'm saying that right. Spain, but um, their commitment to respecting individual choice, that that was intrinsic to the gospel. I feel like that that sticks out to me because how they came about it was not the normal way like Zwingli and Huss and Jerome and all these people where it's like, nah, I'm going to preach this and no matter what, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it was individual. You can't violate my individual conscience. Mm. But you had individuals fighting to say, you should be able to remain Catholic if you want. And they should be able to choose to be Protestant if they want. And this element of religious liberty, I feel, sticks out to me because... The Reformation could have easily become just a Protestant version of what Catholicism was. And we know prophetically it will mm -hmm. because that's not intrinsic to the freedom of conscience. And so I feel like those reformers, just like Wycliffe, they understood mm -hmm. that, no, if you cannot be preaching the gospel and not yeah, preach freedom. Wycliffe used to call the pastors of his day civil servants. Because yeah. <laughs> they're just paid by the state. Pretty know? much. I mean, you're just puppets. So I, I I think that's those would be the people that really stick out to me mm. without speaking to Luther and the common they're all, people. They're all great, and I guess everyone has their own kind of mm -hmm. favorite, so to speak. Favorites is okay. Yeah. Some say favorites are biblical because Jesus had favorites too. <laughs> he had the three in a circle. That's true. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus, for the precedent. <laughs> so maybe a, a question or two on applying some of these principles today someone's listening mm -hmm. um actually no, well yeah applying some of these principles today well, how would you know doctrine restored so we could look at this historically and say okay well you know there, there was the dark ages mm -hmm. doctrine was gone right now it's been restored and praise the lord we're good you know yeah. but how do i if i want to kind of apply that to myself as a someone's listening to my personal bible study my personal life how can i take some principles or some process or whatever apply it to my life that these lessons don't die. And it's not just a history lesson, but it becomes something that I can internalize and, and mm. live. 
So I think in terms of a, a personal mindset, the first thing I would say is when you look at the Reformation, we focus on doctrine, but you have to come back to the fundamental piece of are you willing to die for the truth of Scripture? That's what they all represented. I'm willing to burn. And if you don't believe the things in your faith that much, that I'm willing to burn. I'm willing to let my children burn. I'm willing to allow myself to be tortured for the truths of this. And this is where I love the name lineage because that's our heritage as a Christian. When I converted from atheism, that was the thing that fired me up. Like, I remember reading the great controversy. Man, I was going to my cousins. I wasn't even baptized. I maybe had three Bible studies. I was calling all my cousins, like, do you know the Pope? Da, 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 da. I was like, I'm going to go to the Vatican, not bow down to this dude. I'm going to disrespect him to his face. Like, this is all this. Because when you read, you know, this man making a person wait in the cold, mm. you know, for hours Dang. on your face. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is, I'm going to subjugate you to this level of nothingness just to earn back my forgiveness. And maybe I will let you live. Like, knowing that the person that he's doing this to 100% was correct according to the scriptures. Mm. To me, that's the first mindset you have to have that we don't have that same fire in our personal Bible study that says, I need to approach the Bible as what it claims to be, the word of God, with a certain reverence Mm. and a certain awe and a certain respect that they did. This is what scripture says. By grace alone, they took every word. And that's what we talk about the Sola Scriptura. It's like every word. The Bible alone. Hmm. So when you when you come back to that in your personal Bible study and you approach the Bible with that sort of awe and fascination, that aura surrounds your personal study, I can tell in my devotional time when I have that mindset and when I'm just going through the motions. And lastly, as a Seventh-day Adventist, you know, we understand two realities. The first one is, is that we were supposed to finish the Reformation. And doctrinally, we ultimately have. But on the other side, the great controversy tells us that God will have a people on the earth who will hold the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of every doctrine, as the basis of every reform. Hmm. So when you look at this, as a seven-day Adventist in my personal time, and I love these these words from from, uh, Ellen White, in a youth instructor, 1860, June 1st, she says that when I lose my love for the Bible, I am alarmed. Because I know that I don't love Jesus. Hmm. If I don't love to study the book that testifies. Hmm. This is a woman who's seen Jesus in vision by 1860. This is a woman who's seen Enoch in the city and people from other worlds in vision Angels waking her up every single day. Mm. And she says, there's moments where I lose my love for the Bible. But that's my alarm system. How can I say I love Jesus and I don't love to study the book that testifies of him? Mm. Call it doctrine, call it teachings, call it fundamental beliefs, whatever you want to call it. But I'm telling you right now, angels never weary of hearing Jesus' name exalted. And every single true doctrine, capital T, exalts Jesus. It presents him in his beauty and his glory like Song of Solomon, that he is our beloved. And if we can take that spirit that the reformers had, when you read their stories, like they loved him. 
they loved him as their savior and they loved the word that testified of him and they would not budge and i feel like that's the thing that has been lost we've made it about religion and terminology and vernacular and nomenclature rather than about him Mm. which is what it was always about Mm. and that's what the pope was trying to replace and catholicism was trying to replace him Mm. and if you restore him jesus only you incorporate that in your personal bible study it will revolutionize your christian experience Mm. thank you yeah I, i resonate with that appreciate you sharing that with such passion of how important it was back then and how important it would remain for us and will be going into the future for mm-hmm. you know the final revival revivals that will need to take place amongst us individually and you know adam it, it reminds me of a personal story um i don't know how much time we have left but um i'll be quick my oldest daughter um is nine years old and i remember that Um, I was traveling to preach somewhere and we had family worship and my daughter was coming to me after I was talking about this sort of, I was telling a story about a reformer Mm -hmm. and she said, you know, Pop, I want you to know that if ever anybody told you that they will kill me, right, unless you deny Jesus, she says, you should let them kill me because I wouldn't want to live to see you deny Jesus because you wouldn't be Papa to me Hmm. if you don't love Jesus. That's what my nine-year-old said. And I remember in my heart, like I was so shaken from the conversation because it showed me that A, she was internalizing this stuff. Hmm. And B, she also felt she was supposed to hold me accountable Hmm. to that. She expected nothing less than complete mirror matching the truth. And that to me was a testimony of what the Bible can do. And even, you know, my daughter, she's nine, she'll watch GYC, she'll watch sermons online. And I remember I preached a sermon on Philemon on uh, salvation at an at a army Bible camp. And my daughter was in tears about the forgiveness of Christ and being restored. And she's, she's like, yes, like, I will never, ever stop loving Jesus. That's what she told me. I promise you. It'll never happen. That's the thing that the Reformation gave us, those stories of kids and of wives. Like, Mm -hmm. they got that from those men who stood for the truth. And to me, that's what brings personal devotion. That's what transforms the time of God. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, Sebastian. Thank you for sharing that personal story. And I think it, it encapsulates that the Reformation, yes, we talk about the doctrine, but really it was it was this rediscovery of who Jesus is, mm. which is manifested and you get the full picture when we get the full the full doctrinal puzzle put together, so to speak. That's right. And and each one of these reformers or uh, movements, they, they put a piece of the puzzle together. That's right. To help us see this picture of of who Jesus is in its clearest Obviously, when we get to heaven, we'll see even clearer. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, you know, we see through a glass dimly and we'll see Amen. much more clearer there. So thank you for being with us and sharing with us on this this important subject of restoration of the, the Reformation and how these things, um, historical events, but how they still live on mm-hmm. and need to live on in our personal life today. So thank you for those of you who are listening. And thank you for being a part of this Lineage Journey podcast, Sebastian. 
Mm. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And a pleasure to have you. And we pray for our listeners that God will continue to bless you and that you may internalize what you've heard today and that your spiritual journey and your spiritual walk will be revived and revitalized and refreshed and renewed on a daily basis as you study. Thank you for listening. And we pray that God will continue to bless you. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Lineage Journey is supported by your generous donations. Did you know that you can donate on a monthly basis? Any amount from $2 to 100 or whatever you decide through patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. Your donations go towards the cost of producing our varied content and we thank you for your support.